Hi, folks. This is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 15th, 2019. This is episode 2530 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Tuesday. It's time for a Just Jack show. We've had a few questions lately about saving seeds. And I decided that if I'm going to do this subject again, since I've covered it really in depth, though it was a long time ago, I'm going to do it more of a mile-high view. Just the basic things that you need to know instead of getting into all kinds of specifics, of specific seed types and stuff like that, you can look like that, like look that up in the archives or what have you. And if you go to the survivalpodcast.com and enter saving seed, or saving seeds, you're going to find tons of stuff that we've covered getting really, really granular with this. But I think this is actually the kind of podcast that more people enjoy, that people tend to enjoy a little bit more, which is a much more broad view, just a basic understanding. And then if I need to figure out the very specific nature in which I save a tomato seed, I can use Google. But understanding the philosophy in the overriding way. And we're also going to talk about starting plants in the same way today. We've gotten very granular with that topic. So starting plants is something you can also look up in our website. And if you end up with a particular plant that has a particular issue, then you can Google that and find that. But the overall overriding concept of how do I set up a system so I can start my own plants from seed, which one should I start from seed, which one should I shouldn't, etc. That's what we're going to talk about today. Make a nice, uh, somewhat shorter than typical podcast, hopefully. And we'll get into all that in just a moment. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is JM Bullion. I've been recommending 5 to 10% of your net wealth in silver and or gold since I started this podcast all the way back in 2008, and that recommendation has not changed. It is not going to change because it's a sane, rational number that anchors you with an asset that has a historical um, track record that goes back thousands of years of never being worth zero, always having that intrinsic value, being a completely anonymous and transferable source of wealth that can be transferred to buy things anonymously or can be transferred to heirs anonymously, you name it. And it's the last thing, I promise you. If you invest 5% of your net wealth into silver and gold, you keep it in a floor safe or something like that, um, it will be the last money you spend. You will have to be down to your last dollar before you start selling it off. And what that means is you always have that nest egg put away. It's the one that you have the most self-discipline with, and it has that historical track record. Now, where are you going to get it? Jam bullion. Why wouldn't you? Okay, they have better pricing than the big silver and gold houses like Monix and Atmex. They give you a discount if you're a member of my member support brigade. They give you free shipping, and they've supported this show for nine years. Why would you go anywhere else other than JM Bullion? Check them out. You know where to find them, jmbullion.com. Next up, the other precious metal. What is the other precious metal? you got silver, you got gold. Is it platinum? Not platinum. School? Palladium? No, no. The other real precious metal. Copper jacketed lead. That's what you're going to get at bulkammo.com where they have all the common calibers, everything that you could need when it comes to stocking up on ammo, shipping that's so quick that it just takes less time to order it and have it delivered to your house and it doesn't go out to the store and deal with incompetent people and incompetent inventory and damn near some of these places you got to fill out paperwork to just buy a box of ammo now. It ain't worth it. Go to bulkammo.com, save money, get your ammo, get it quick, and remember, your gun without ammo, it's an overpriced club. Check them out today, bulkammo.com. They also do a discount for members of the MSB. That brings us to our quote of the day today. Um, since we're doing stuff with gardening and seeds and starting plants, 
Um, I looked at a couple different quotes, and I decided to go with one I've definitely talked about on the air before from one of my favorite people from history, Thomas Jefferson. And this is what Thomas Jefferson said about gardening. No occupation is so delightful to me as the culture of the earth, and no culture comparable to that of the garden. What I have always found interesting about Jefferson's uh, writings and musing on growing things and gardening is he really focuses far more toward gardening than what we think of as agriculture. If, if, you, if you look at Jefferson's book, he does have a book called The Farm Book, by the way. It's really interesting. I got a copy of it. I haven't really been able to dig into it like his garden book. Uh, but his true passion and his true love was not agriculture. It was horticulture. And that's what we're going to be talking about today is why I picked this topic. Agriculture was seen in the time of Jefferson as it is seen today as what we needed to do to feed people. Horticulture, the cultivation of plants, the cultivation of a garden was seen as a way to feed yourself far more so and to create beauty and to create medicine and fibers and things like that. So it wasn't just about this giant plot of land that was designed to produce a profit. And, and Jefferson really was big on the concept that America should be a place of endless small holdings of land. You know, Jefferson gets a bad rap because he was a slave owner, one of the many founders that was, and he was a product of his time. But Jefferson's view of what the United States should be was never massive farms everywhere. It was thousands upon thousands upon millions of small farms owned by individuals who sought their own way, who first fed themselves, and then what they produced in surplus would be used to feed those that were not farmers. Because he knew that not everybody would be a farmer, not, a farmer, not everybody would be a gardener. But some of his advice in his the garden book were things like, every two weeks, sow a thimble full of lettuce seed, and you will never be without lettuce. That's not a, that's not a farmer. That's a horticulturist. And that's what we're going to be coming at this today as horticulturists. Because I want to start out with why we should even save seed. Why we should even do that. Because the prepper space is full of so much apocalyptic, end-of-the-world bullshit that we get really clouded over the motivations behind what we do. I mean, I need a, a seed vault and all these heirloom seeds that can be saved so that I can produce food for myself for 20 years while society rebuilds. This is just a, is a fantasy land that you need to just divorce yourself from. If you're new to this show and you came here for that, you ain't getting here. We talk about modern survivalism, basic preparedness, developing systems of resiliency. That's what we talk about. When it comes to saving seed, we're really doing it for reasons other than surviving the end of the world. But if you are a, if you're a farmer and you grow corn, if you sh you know unloaded yourself from the shackles of Monsanto and Bear and Conagra, etc. Monsanto doesn't exist anymore. It's been absorbed by Bear. But you know what I'm talking about. And you're not using a genetically modified corn, and you need seed every year to plant a new crop, then it makes a big financial case to go buy your seed. So we are going to talk a little bit about how you can save money as a horticulturist, as a home gardener, right? Just a little bit. But there is not a huge financial case. I'm not saying there's not a financial case. Again, we're going to cover the little one that's there, but it's not huge. When you look at how many seeds come in a $2 packet of seed or a $4 packet of seed, we don't really need to save seed. Like, it's save money's on the list, but it's not at the top. 
The number one reason I believe that we should save seed is because we develop locally adapted crops. The, the, the plants that you grow this year, if you go out, and I don't care what seeds you buy, I don't care what brand, I don't care what company, it doesn't matter, assuming that you're buying an open-pollinated seed that's going to re, uh, reproduce itself true to type, meaning what you save will make the same type of plant and the same type of fruit or vegetable that you got when you planted the seed the first time. I guess I really didn't put this in my notes. We need to talk about this for people that are unfamiliar with the concept. The first thing I want you to do is just take the concept of GMO seeds for today, put it on the shelf, put it in the back of the shelf behind the dusty stuff. It does not apply to you. Okay, When you're buying seed, if you're, we have non-GMO seed. If you're buying garden seed, you're buying non-GMO seed. Okay? They, just, they don't sell it to you. So just don't worry about that from a standpoint of a scientific-based concept where they actually splice genes together and take two things that don't belong together and put them together like a puppy kitten. That's GMO. That's not hybrid. They're different things. I hate when people equate hybrids with GMO. Anybody that does that, I'm not going to put you down if you do that, but I'm going to tell you that your advice or that person's advice about everything that comes out of their mouth next to us, anything to do with seeds, should be ignored. They do not know what they're talking about. Hybrid, GMO, not the same. I have a dog laying here in front of me. He is a pit bull crossed with a pointer. His name's Charlie, for those that haven't seen my videos and don't know my dogs. Um, he's laying right here. He's actually having a dream right now. I'm going to pet him on the butt with my foot and wake him up. Come on, Charlie, wake up. Don't don't have a bad puppy nightmare. But he's half pit bull, half pointer. Might have some other stuff in him, but that's his main breed characteristic. He's a hybrid. He is a pit bull and a pointer, but if you take a, a pointer, you know, a short-haired pointer that's in heat, and you put her with a male pit bull, and they get along overall, you're going to get pit bull pointer puppies. That's what's going to happen. That happens in nature. We don't have to do anything to make that happen, right? Nothing. It just, that's how nature works. Um, I have a cat named uh, Dana. She is a female cat. She's fixed, and Charlie's fixed too, so there'd be no way this would happen anyway, but they get along. I mean, I have seen Charlie laying outside and sleeping, and I've seen Dana climb up on his back and sleep on his back, which is odd because she really kind of hates the other two dogs, but she likes Charlie. No matter how well they get along, they're not going to make puppy kittens. And if Charlie was a really little dog and Dana was a really big cat, which they're not, so the size difference wasn't the problem, we still, this is not going to happen. See? We're not going to get a dog and a cat hybrid. We can put a lion and a tiger together and we'll get a liger. That is a hybrid. Right, But we can't put a dog and a cat together. GMO is when we put a dog and a cat together with gene splicing. Metaphorically, because we're going to do something like take, uh, we want to make a GMO type of cotton for cotton seed and cotton seed oil that they put in the food that you eat. And we need a trait that comes from a fish that lives on the bottom of the ocean. There's no world in which the cotton seed and the fish can get together and make a special cotton seed. But with gene splicing, we can put them together. That's GMO. Again, that has nothing to do with your backyard garden. It has nothing to do with the seeds that you buy anywhere from really great sources like Baker Creek and GrowOrganic.com and High Mowing and Peaceful Valley and uh, all the Victory Seeds and Terroir Seeds and all the wonderful people that we, we deal with. It has nothing to do. It doesn't matter if you bought them from Walmart. You're not buying GMO seed for your garden. So just throw that idea out. A hybrid seed. A hybrid seed is Charlie is the product of a um, 
a pit bull and a pointer having dog sex, and they made a puppy. If I did not have Charlie fixed, and then I had him reproduce with another dog that was also a product of a pit bull cross with a pointer, that first group of offspring, some of them might look just like Charlie and have the same traits he does. And some of them would look more like a pit bull. And some of them would look more like a pointer. Right? That's your, that's your F2 generation. Right? So you had your F1 generation made Charlie and his littermates. If we take his littermates and we breed them to one of his littermates, probably not the best for, for line breeding, but we did that, then we end up with an F2 generation. That F2 generation will have some that look just like the parents and some that look like the grandparents to one side or the other. If we then take in that F2 generation and we select from it dogs that look like their parents, maybe one in seven out of several litters, and we breed them together, we will still have in that F3 generation, right, F4 generation by then of pups, we will start to have more that look like the parents but still showing traits of the grandparents to one side or the other. If we do that for enough generations, we will stabilize the genes by selecting this is what we want this dog to look like. And at that point, we have a new breed, a pit pointer. Right? Nobody's made a pit pointer. I think Charlie's excellent. Somebody should. Right? Somebody should work with that breed combination. It's an amazing dog. The, the, the courage, the... Uh, The dog is just one of the greatest dogs I've ever owned. In fact, I would say he is the best dog I've ever owned. Right? Some of that is personal, but a lot of that, I believe, comes from these two breeds coming together with the unique characteristics that they bring. But I can't make more of him with only one pair of F1 generation. I have to breed that out over a long period of time to stabilize the selected genes. That's an heirloom seed. Very few heirloom seeds are wild seed types. In other words, they're just the seed we picked up in the woods and we planted and it grew. That's a wild seed type. Almost all the vegetables that we grow, all the fruit that we grow, etc., in the world today, that we would call an heirloom, was a hybrid combination that was selected over multiple generations. And now, if I plant a mortgage lifter tomato, and I only plant mortgage lifter tomatoes, any tomato I save and save the seed out of it, I'm going to get more mortgage lifter tomatoes. Where if I plant a mortgage lifter tomato and a brandy wine next to each other, I won't really know unless I manually pollinate, did I get a cross-pollination or did I get a self-pollination? And if I, if I got a cross-pollination, I'm going to get a hybrid that's a brandy wine and a mortgage lifter put together. What's it going to be like? Don't know until we do it. But if it's really great, that's awesome. But if we save the seed from it, even only pollinating itself... We're going to get some that are just like it and some that are going to start to revert to both sides and won't go true to type. So when it comes to selecting seed, the easiest thing to do is to start with a seed of, that, that you know will produce true to type. And then we have to think a little bit about things called separation distances and stuff like that, right, and timing. But if we do that, and let's say that we just pick a variety of basil, As, as, a, as a, for instance, plant. Really easy to reproduce. Really easy to get tons of seed from. Really hardy. Grows like crazy. If we plant one strain of basil, let's say Genovese. So it's Genovese basil. It's the same Genovese basil that everybody plants. But what's going to happen is that plant is going to send up, if you let it grow long enough, and it gets really a woody stock bottom, 
it's going to go to seed. And that's when the leaves aren't going to be quite so good anymore. They're going to get a little bit bitter. And you see those little spikes of flowers on them. Next thing you know, there's going to be pollinators all over them. And those flowers will slowly start to turn brown, and the petals will fall off them, and there'll be these seed cases. You'll be able to walk by and strip those cases off. And inside each case will be a bunch of little bitty black seeds. They'll look just like the ones you planted. And if you plant them, you'll get Genevieve's basil. Here's the thing. If you plant a bunch of them, like you just scatter them, the ones that are best adapted to grow and survive will grow and survive. And the ones that are best adapted to grow and survive and thrive in your climate will be the healthiest ones that grow out of the ones you planted. So next season, or with basil, you can probably get two times. You can get early seed crop, plant it, and get a second seed crop. So you can get two generations in one season in a southern climate with basil. Maybe even more if you're clever. And you plant those seeds again. Okay, now... They've already Now you've already got a plant that you selected. Okay, I planted a bunch of them. 20 basil plants came out throughout the property. This one looked the best. I'm going to select seed off of that one. And because I want some diversity in my genetics, that one looked the second best, so I take seed from that. Next year I plant, or next season I plant it again. It grows. Now I've selected the select. And now I'm starting to move toward what you would call a land race. So now we are beginning to make, a gen it's a Genovese basil. If we send it for genetic testing, any, any good genetics lab that does genetic testing on plants would be able to say, this is the Genovese variety of sweet basil. That's what this is. But if we did it for 10 years, 15 years, it's going to, because each seed has its own little grouping of genetics that it's pulled out of. Some maybe have leaves that are a little bit bigger, some that are a little bit smaller, some that are a little bit more drought tolerant, some a little bit more moist tolerant. Some handle uh, specific molds or funguses in your area better than others. And every time we plant a bunch of seed and select only the best, we end up with something that even though it's still Genovese basil, it starts to become Jack's Genovese basil or Bill's Genovese basil or Michelle's uh, Genovese basil or Debbie's Genovese basil. Now, if Debbie lives in Iowa... And she's been growing Genevieve's basil for 20 years. And she's so kind when she comes to Jack's workshop, she brings me some of Debbie's Genevieve's basil from, from Iowa. And I plant it here. It's going to grow just fine. It's just not regionally adapted. It won't do as well for me, maybe, as it did for her. And if I just use her seed as source seed, and I grow it for 20 years, it's going to become a land race of Jack's Genevieve's basil. And this is the number one reason I think that we should be saving seed because we're growing then a, a, a locally adapted. But we're not, I'm not just growing it locally adapted to North Texas. I'm growing it locally adapted to my miserable piece of land. My harsh limestone, shallow soil piece of land. I'm adapting it to my particular backyard. And... Even if you're getting, and this does not mean not to do it, but even if you're getting seed from your neighbor three miles down the road, it is not as regionally adapted. It's not as specifically adapted to your property, your level of care that you provide, your type of pests and everything, as it is if you do it. So that's the number one reason. The other thing we should do is specific traits. So one of the things I'm really proud of is the, the percentage of my jalapeno peppers that turn bright red, that ripen to red. Now, all jalapeno peppers, if you leave them on the plant long enough, they will turn red. 
But I have only saved seed from my jalapenos that are the biggest peppers that turn red for many seasons, for longer than I've done the Survival Podcast. Hence, the majority of my jalapeno peppers are large, thick-walled, and turn red relatively quickly. And the ones that don't turn red turn this amazing kind of purpley red color. And so I would say almost every pepper on my plant, before it will start to look not so nice, is going to turn red. When I put the shade cloth over them for two months out of the year, my aviary, I get a little less of that. But most of it still turns a beautiful bright red. And then I started saying, I started noticing that my jalapenos, when they turn red, are just much sweeter than even a red jalapeno from somewhere else. And that's something that I, I specifically looked for. I want a thick wall, big pepper, turns red early. right? So there's three traits there. Now, you can find a lot of traits that you're looking for in seeds, be they heirloom or hybrid, and buy them. But you can tailor it to things that you would want to do. Here'd be another example. I don't grow corn. Uh, it's tough to grow, and I don't eat a lot of corn, so I'm not going to grow it. But let's say that you did. And let's say you were looking for a corn that was like the earliest corn you could grow in your climate. was still pretty cold. Well, what you could do is you make a little cornfield. I'm talking, you know, maybe 16 foot by 50 foot, something like that. So that's for a cornfield, that's pretty small. For garden bed, it's huge. But you, you put that out. And you select the corn that is already best adapted to be the earliest corn you can grow, plant it as early as possible. Maybe there's still some light frost or whatever on the ground. And it says you can plant by this date, so you plant that corn. But what you do is you plant it a week early. And you know you're going to get some stunted growth and stuff like that. So you plant it a little bit more dense so that it's you're going to have more thinning to do. And that corn grows. And every plant that looks weak and unhappy, you go in with a knife and just cut it off at the ground and instead of pulling it out and disturbing the soil. And you end up with a corn crop. And maybe you end up with a lower yield than you would have ended up if you planted at the right time for your region. Because it was a little bit cold and some of your corn just didn't do that good. But at the end of that season, at the end of that growing cycle, you select the biggest, most beautiful cobs of, and ears of corn. You leave them on the stalk until they harden so they are a true seed corn and you take that seed and you plant it next year. And this time you plant it two weeks earlier than you should. Maybe you plant half of it two weeks early and half a week early to hedge your bet. And then you do the same thing. You select the biggest, most beautiful ears. In time, you will be able to develop a corn that is earlier than the corn you started with. How far? Depends on how far you can push it. In some instances, we've already pushed things to the edge of what they can do. But that's just another example. So this is why I think we should be doing. The main things we are looking for is local adaptation and specific traits. So let's talk about saving money. I kind of poo-pooed it, but when you look at a, a sizable garden, 20 different varieties of things, your seed bill in a year could be quite high. Now, the thing is, what I think mitigates that is in most instances, you buy a packet of seed this year, you've got two or three seasons before you run out of seed for most things. Most of us aren't growing 50 tomato plants. But you buy a packet of seed, you get 50, 60, 100 seeds, and you need to grow six. Those seeds have easy five years of longevity in them. So once you start gardening and kind of come up with your main crops, yeah, that first year that you buy a bunch of seed, it can be expensive, but 
you know, okay, I got tomato seed, I've got melon seed, I've got this, I've got that. I need some lettuce seed. So you might find in your second year you're buying three or four varieties. So I don't think you can save a ton of money, but you can save some money. There is an economic advantage, and there is some independence to it. My last reason, though, really more than anything else, is because we can. We should save seed because we can. Because it's easy. Because it's not hard. Because it doesn't have to be difficult. And before I go on, I want to make sure that I'm really clear about this. I have no animosity toward hybrid seeds. And I think if you do, you have listened to one too many people on YouTube that probably shouldn't be telling anybody anything. There is nothing wrong with a hybrid. There's nothing wrong with my dog, my pit bull pointer dog, Charlie, who I'm petting with my foot on the butt. He's all stretching out now. Nothing wrong with him. He's not inferior. And hybridization is not going to cause the fruit of a particular plant, fruit vegetable of a particular plant, and everything of a seed in it is a fruit, by the way, um, to morph. So well, some people say, well, I, I planted a squash. And clearly it got cross-pollinated because the squash produced some kind of franken-squash. No, that's not how that works. When Charlie was uh, not born yet, when he was still a, an embryo puppy in his mommy, and I'm not sure which direction this went, so we'll just take a guess. Let's say it was a male pointer and a female pit bull. When they had doggy sex, that female pit bull that carried him as a pup in her stomach and his, his siblings, assuming he had some, did not change. It, she did not change. He was the seed, the fertilized egg that she produced as a puppy. When you have a pepper plant, say a jalapeno pepper, and there's bell peppers next to it, and a little bee comes along, a mason bee, and he goes into your bell pepper and he gets some pollen on him, and he goes over to your jalapeno pepper and he brings that pollen with him from the bell to the jalapeno pepper. The jalapeno pepper that plant produces is going to be the exact same pepper that it would have produced if it had been pollinated by another jalapeno or any other pepper. There will be no change to that pepper at all. That's the mommy dog. The seeds inside it are the puppies. And only when you plant the, the seed and see it grow up and it produces its own puppy will you see the difference. Will you see that you've had a hybrid pepper. That's how hybrids work. And nobody anywhere can change that. And I don't care who tells you that. I don't care how long you believed it. I don't care if your great-grandpa told you that while he spat tobacco into a spittoon. I don't care. Scientifically, that's how that works. And any belief you have that it's any different, you need to let go of, not because Jack Spierko says so, because it is the way that things are. Some of the things I tell you guys, it's not my opinion. It's a statement of scientific fact, and that is one of them. So there's nothing wrong with hybrids, and there's nothing wrong with saving the seeds from hybrids to see what you're going to get but you don't know what you're going to get. However, in seven generations, if you want to take the challenge on, you could take a hybrid seed. Maybe it's a, uh, I don't know, jalapenos. We're talking about jalapenos. So there's a jalapeno called Tam jalapeno. It's a hybrid. Pretty sure Tam's a hybrid. Let's say that it is. If you save the seeds from your Tam jalapenos, then you are going to get some that look like Tam, and you're going to get some that look like some version thereof, some are going to be little, runty, whatever, all kinds of different stuff. But if it, you then only select the ones that look like what you want, and you save them and plant them again, and you do that for seven generations, so maybe you can do it in three and a half years, if you start your seeds really early, get a plant up, select your peppers and first peppers, plant those seeds, and get a second plant. So maybe you can do this in three, three and a half years 
to get seven generations. Within seven generations of selecting only the traits you want, you will get a stable new heirloom. So anybody that shits on hybrids is shitting on every heirloom, save a very few, because that's how they all got created. So how do we do this? Number one, we want to harvest our seed from mature plants with mature fruit. Let's look at a cucumber as an example to say what I mean. So you pick a cucumber from any time when it's really little to kind of like a, a certain eating size. And there's a certain size they get to where you're like, that's really kind of too big and it gets woody and it's not quite so nice anymore. If you want to save the seeds from a cucumber, you want to let that happen to that cucumber. So you're going to make your selection like, oh, that is a perfect cucumber. That's what I want. That trait, whatever it is about it's really straight, it's really big, it's really bright green, whatever it is. So then we want to somehow mark that one so we don't pick it. My easiest way to do this, the little bitty zip ties that come in bright colors, just put one on the stem. Bright orange, that way you can't miss it. So when you go out to pick, oh, nope, don't pick that one, we're waiting for that one. And then we know that that is the cucumber we want to save. So we want to always harvest seed from mature plants. Exactly how? It depends. Some plants, you cut them open, take the seeds out, let them dry, and put them away. That's it. Some things like tomatoes, you kind of mash them up, you put them in water, you let them kind of get a fermentation thing going on, then you separate the seeds from the pulp and the water, and then you dry them out. So, I don't, again, I don't want to get into the exact way that you save different types of seeds today, because all you have to do is look up how to save blank seed. And if there's any special procedures, it'll tell you. But you always want a mature fruit or plant that you're going to harvest seed from. And then pay attention, but don't freak out about cross-pollination. So if you really wanted to save the seed from a particular type of tomato, then one of the things you can do is a separation distance. So let's say you want to grow four types of tomatoes, but you want to save the seed from one. Just plant that tomato on one side of your garden, And plant the other three on the other side of your garden. That right there will do a lot for it. You can also do manual pollination. And again, you can mark your blossoms with your little zip ties. So you can go in with a, uh, with a Q-tip or a paintbrush and basically pretend you're a bee. And then you can even do that with new flowers that are just opening that day. And then you can put a little paper sack over top of them so know that insects can't get in. You mark that one. You know that you've, you've got that pollination down. Squash is a big one. Like I, I said squash because it's the one everybody freaks out about, but what happened when you get that Franken-squash? The cross-pollination happened in the past. You thought you had a pure seed for a butternut, but you had a butternut cross with an acorn or something like that, right? And there's four species of squash. I can't name them all off my head, but they don't, they don't interpollinate. So you can do four different squashes, like there's C. machetta, C. maxima, and C. pep, P and see something else, right? They're all cucurbit. And you can do four of each different family, and they will not cross-pollinate. But if you do two Simochetta, they can cross-pollinate. Right? So when you got that Franken-squash, that happened before, and the seed that came out was the one that caused the cross-pollination. Not this time it happened when a bee went from one squash plant to another. But squash is really big on cross-pollination. This, But it's such an easy thing to do. When you look at squash, you have a male and a female blossom. The female has the fruit. The male does not, right? It's on a stem. So what you do is you keep an eye on your plant. When it starts producing female blossoms, you pick one or two that you want to get your seed from. You put your little zip tie on them while they're still closed. And you watch them, and you know, like, tomorrow it's going to be just about starting to open. So you get yourself a male blossom. You pull the feathers, the feathers off, the, the petals off of it. 
So you have your stamen there with your pollen on it. And that morning when you go out, you pull that female flower open when it's just getting ready to start opening on its own, and you make it have flower sex, man. You just touch the stamen to the pistol, and you get that in there. Then take a piece of masking tape, take that flower, pinch it back shut, and tape it shut. And I feel like, it takes too long. It takes like freaking 30 seconds literally to do that. You don't have time to garden if you don't have time to do that. Just don't make whiny-ass baby excuses. I'm not in the mood for them today, right? Even vicariously, right? So once that's done, then all you do is let that squash grow. And you can let it grow to a size you want to harvest, nice mature squash. It can sit on a shelf for days and days or months and months if it's a winter squash. And whenever you go to eat it, you just take your seed out, put them on some paper towel, let them dry out, get them nice and dry before you put them away, and then you have seed. And you know that you have seed that is this squash only. You can also do that to make hybrids. It's actually really interesting what happens when you take a jalapeno and cross-pollinate it to a bell pepper and the other way back around. When you take a jalapeno and you cross when you do that cross in either direction, you get slightly different things. But you get basically kind of a funky-looking bell pepper with a little tiny bit of heat that produces a lot more peppers per plant. Or you get kind of a really big jalapeno that's kind of mild that produces a little less peppers per plant. It all depends on what the initial varieties were and whatever. But you can do your own hybridization. This is another reason to do seed saving. And oh, hybrids are bad. No, because you don't know what you're going to get until you try. And you have people like Seb Holzer. They let everything cross-pollinate. They just keep massively re-sowing seed, and they end up with all kinds of cool shit. So we don't have to get all wound up and all tight about this whole thing with cross-pollination. Cross-pollination is where everything came from. And then once we have those seeds and we've saved them and they're dry, I can't emphasize how important it is to get your seeds nice and dry before you put them in any kind of a storage. Put them in a cool, dry place in the dark. And I've actually found that probably the best thing to store seeds in is not a plastic bag. Because assuming you didn't get every bit of moisture out of those seeds, you get mold and your seeds go bad. Um, paper sacks. You can write on them the label, fold them up. They go into a box and a file system. Really, really nice. Just paper sacks. Use the little bitty paper bags instead of the great big lunch sack size ones. Put your seeds in there, label them, date them. Fold them up so they're the, the shape that you want them for the box you keep them in. Put them in a box. Keep them somewhere cool and dark and dry. And, yeah, you might be able to get a little bit better of a storage method. And you might have a little bit longer viability of your seeds. But you're saving seeds so they're free. You can save way more than you'll ever need. Wherever you plant a seed, plant two. If both of them come up, they probably will kill one. Just make your life easy. Don't make any of this hard. It doesn't have to be hard. If you just accept the fact that you know nature and, and has been handling things this way for as long as nature's existed. See, what I'm trying to take away today is I can tell you a hundred little special things about doing this. But that's how people talk themselves out of doing things. Like... Man has been going, oh, look, that's a nice plant. I'm going to take seed off that plant and plant it next year. For as long as man has understood what a seed did. Nature reproduces every plant in nature this way by itself with no help. Do you want to save seeds from your bean plants? Here's an example of how simple this can be. 
Leave some of the nicest looking beans on the plant. Don't pick them. Just leave them there. Let them go fully mature and let them keep going. Let the pod dry. Brown, dry, brittle while it's still on the plant. Take a little cloth sack. Go out. Don't even get the seeds out of the case. Just pick your dry beans. Leave them in the thing and throw them in a cloth sack. Tie a knot in it. Throw it in a cool, dry place out, you know, like in your shop building or something like that, up in a shelf. Just leave them there. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's how my grandfather did his beans. He grew the same beans for 30 years, green beans. That was all he did. Just leave some of them this time. It's going to be the last pick of the year. Leave, leave, like, leave like 10% of them. So there's enough to plant next year. That's what I would hear. Okay. They, get, they start to turn brown. They're turning brown. Right? Don't worry about it. Nature knows what she's doing. I'll tell you when you got to do something. And then like a couple weeks later, they help. The bean seeds are ready. Go get them. Give me a little, like a little cotton sack they used to keep them in. Why? Because it's what he had. Don't break them open. It'll be a pain in the ass. First couple of years I did it, down there watching me over my shoulder. After that, you just go do it. Pick them off just like your regular beans. Throw them in the sack. Spring had come. He grabbed the sack. He'd take the sack and he'd crumble it in his hands. So that all of the, the, ch the, the chaff would kind of come off. He'd shake the bag up. And he'd hand me the bag. Pull the seeds out, stick them in the ground. That was it. You gotta have separation. He grew one kind of bean. That was it. Well, you got a vacuum seat. No. He threw them in a cotton sack, threw them in a cigar box, and threw them in a cabinet in his storeroom. He also kept in that, he had a little little envelope. He kept his tomato seeds in a little manila envelope that was probably older than, than I am now in the same cigar box. And not a nice cigar box either, like a cardboard one with cheap cigars. Right? Like that. Kept his pepper seeds in there too. Another little manila envelope. And he did that. He also saved some garlic to replant garlic every year. And he saved dill seed. And you know how he did the dill seed? Leave some, of the, leave some of the dill on there. I know your grandma says she wants it for pickling. She doesn't need it all. And you get to where the dill seed all turns brown, where it's all gone to seed. He's like, go down there, yank it off, and throw it on the ground. I go down, pull the whole thing off. Go, no, no, no. I thought you'd know better by now, right? He'd come down there, grab it, grab the little seed, because it's like a little disc of seed head. Grab it, crumble it in his hand, and throw the seed on the ground. Basil, same way. The spikes on the basil, just pull that off and throw it on the ground. It'd probably do it itself, but this way I know it happened. And everything else that he grew, he bought seed and, st and started plants or bought plants for. Broccoli, he didn't bother with. It's a biannual. It's too much work. Cauliflower, biannual, too much work. Cabbage, biannual, too much work. He bought seed whenever he ran out of seed, and he planted the same broccoli, the same cauliflower, and the same cabbage every year. And this is the philosophy that a man that lived through the Depression that taught me how to use rat traps to catch squirrels because that's how hungry they were, how he ran his garden. And he, he fed half the damn neighborhood off of his garden, quarter-acre garden. That's how much effort he put into it, almost none. He put as little as possible, as much as he could get a kid to do into it. That was That's what he did, right? So don't freak out about any of this stuff. Let's move on now to starting plants from seed. This is another place I think people get way overboard. I want to start all my own plants, all right? You probably shouldn't until everything else is going wonderful for you. There's no shame in buying plants or buying seed. 
I'll say that more, more than one more time before we're done here. But the first rule is, if there is enough time in your climate to take that seed and sow it directly into the ground, do not start the seed indoors. Let me say it again. If there is enough time to get a good harvest, let's not just say a harvest, a good harvest, in your growing climate where you can plant that seed in the ground, plant it in the ground, It will never grow as good as it can if it's planted where it grows for its entire life. That is the way the seed was designed. The seed was not designed to grow in one place for six to eight weeks and be moved to another place and put in the ground. Nature has nothing like that. Seeds land in places. Some die. Some land on rock. Some land in cracks. Some land in crevices. Some land in good soil. Some land in poor soil. And the seed... It grows or it gets eaten, but when it grows, it grows where it grows permanently. And some stuff does not transplant well. Carrots do not transplant well. Think about the way they're shaped. They're disturbed, they're unhappy. Squash, you can, but there's almost no reason to, and it doesn't like to be transplanted. Melons, you know, they don't like to be transplanted. For the cost of those two cantaloupe plants that you buy, you know, Bonnie's cantaloupe plants you bought at Home Depot or Lowe's, you could have bought an entire pack of cantaloupe seeds and planted them after the danger of frost in your garden directly, and they will outpace what you got from the store. I'm not saying never to buy that stuff. I'm just saying that's, that's the reality you're dealing with. So the first thing when it comes to starting your own plants from seed, the first plants to start from seed are all the ones you can plant in the ground. Beans, carrots, right? Um, Swiss chard. I do start Swiss chard as a baby plant sometimes, but the best Swiss chard plants I have, they grew right where I planted them. Throw three seeds into a hole. Space them out so they're not right on top of each other, and if all three come up, let them go for a while. When you see the one that looks like it's doing best, cut the other ones off at the ground. Don't even pull it out. That way you don't disturb the roots. Just just get a little pair of snippers or a little knife and just, just cut it off at the ground. Let one win. Just like nature does. Except you're now nature's guiding hand instead of letting nature do everything. You don't end up with spindly plants because they had to compete with each other. You end up with one real robust plant. So seed starting start out with identifying everything you want to grow that can be directly sown and directly sow that. And never waste space, time, energy, or money with artificial lighting or greenhouses or any of that shit for that unless you have a specific reason. Like I really want a small crop of this plant early. So I'm going to start a few, and then I'm going to put those out, and then I'm going to plant in the ground. Okay, fine. If you know what you're doing, fine. But start out with everything I want to grow that could be directly sown is going to be directly sown. And there are some crossovers. Like I'd say lettuce. Like there's, in the really cold part of the year, if you direct sow lettuce, it just it just doesn't grow. It's just like, oh, I don't feel like it, you jerk. So you can get some of your early lettuce as started individual plants. I start lettuce from seed all the time. I also like to plant it in the ground wherever I can. So you figure out that, but start out with plant as much in the ground as you can. Next, light is key, and so is heat. These are the two biggest things we need to think about when we're starting plants. We need good soil, but it doesn't have to be great. We want it to be weed-free. We want it to stay damp but not wet. That's the key to getting our plants to grow. But our other big things are light and heat. So if you look at days to germination for a lot of seed, you'll see something like five to seven days. 
But if you look deeper into that particular plant, you'll see that, like, well, that's assuming that the soil temperature is 75 degrees. But if the soil temperature is 65 degrees, it may take that seed 14 or 21 days to germinate. And if that soil temperature is 50 degrees, it may take 50 or 60 days, or it may never germinate. And if you think about this, this is the intrinsic intelligence of a plant. If there's a seed and it's in the ground, and it's because this vegetable fell on the ground last year, it was a tomato plant, and it fell and it you know, it was all wrapped up in goop, and finally it ended up in the soil. An animal buried it, some took a dump on it, whatever. And by the time that happened, it was like, you know, the day temperature was in the 40s. The soil temperature is close to freezing. And now the soil does begin to freeze at the surface. And that's, that little seed is sitting there in its poop capsule because the goose pooped on it. If it has a couple days that are a little bit warm and that soil temperature comes up to, let's say, 48 degrees or even 55 degrees, maybe it can germinate. Maybe it shouldn't. How does it know? Well, it has this intrinsic intelligence that says if it's 55 degrees for at least this number of days, that means that the soil temperature is not going to go back to freezing. I can germinate. Or if it's like 55 degrees for a couple days, and that plant germinates, and it starts to grow, and a frost comes in, boom, now it's dead. So seeds are designed that way. So if we want to get our seeds to germinate quickly and grow fast, we want to warm the soil temperature to the temperature they prefer. And that's generally going to be somewhere between 75 and 85 degrees. Now, we don't have to warm a whole space. We can have a seed starting area where we have a heating pad, and our plants sit on the pad, and we're warming the soil. A lot of plants will do really great with a with an air temperature of 50 degrees, but a soil temperature of like 70. So again, I don't want to get into all parts of the system today, but we want to think about warmth of the soil. So if we're using a greenhouse to start our seeds, that might be really good, but we might need some supplemental heat, even if it's not going down below freezing at night, to get things off to a rapid start. Because if our temperature is going down in the high 30s at night, then our soil can drop in temperature a great deal. So we might want to at least temporarily heat that soil, or at least heat that soil at night. If we're doing it in the house and we're doing it in the winter, a lot of us keep our homes pretty cool in the winter because we'd only need to be so warm. And even though it's maybe 68 degrees air temperature, moist soil with some evaporation in our little seed starting rack, that soil might be like 56 degrees. So we might need to heat that. So that's one thing we need to think about is, is nice, warm soil. Number two, light. And the number one thing that kills people with starting their own plants is light. There's a couple ways this happens. One, they get a light that's really not strong enough. They put their plant underneath it, and the plant can't get enough from that light. So it starts growing as tall and fast as it can. And they're like, yay, look at my fast-growing plant. And then it falls over, all spindly and unhappy. That's one thing that happens. Another thing that happens is you get a light that is sufficient, but they put it two feet above the plant. And like the Kingbow LED grow lights, when you're starting plants, it should be like a few four, four inches above. And then as the plant grows, you kind of keep raising the light and let the plant chase the light as you slowly raise it. Then you get nice pit bull plants, butch plants. Man. You, know, you want them to be wide, 
thick. That's what you're looking for in a seedling. That's a seedling that's going to do really, really good. The other thing I have is people like, I know, I have a sunny window. And they don't think about the fact that they have like one of these newfangled, you know, highly insulative UV blocking windows. So it looks like sunlight. But when you put the plant there, the plant is only getting certain wavelengths of light, not getting the full spectrum that it needs, which is good to keep your rug from fading. It's good to keep excess heat from coming into your house, but it's not good for your plant. You want you know, single-pane, boring, cheap, low-end glass if you have glass between a plant and its light source. So you either need a greenhouse or a solarium, solar room, a sunroom that is designed for this with the right kind of glass, or you need good quality plant lights, or you need a greenhouse that you've taken care of the heating and cooling issues. And I would say you can do some really great things under plant lights. But if you're in the right climate, and you can build the right size, or even just rope off, you know, like close off part of your greenhouse. I've seen people have really big greenhouses, maybe something like a 20 by 60 tunnel. But then they'll, they'll wall off like a, like a 5 by 10 area in there, and then you can heat that in the evenings. So you don't have to heat the whole damn greenhouse, because you don't need a lot of space to start your seeds. And I have never seen seeds, when you're doing like starting seeds in little pots to be transplanted, do better than they do in a greenhouse, because it's real sunlight and it's real exposure. It also tends to be, they, they require less hardening off. So when you have a plant and you've been keeping it in this little nirvana, You've kept the soil perfectly moist. It's not been beaten up by the wind because it's been sheltered. It's been in your greenhouse. It's been getting sunlight. It's been taken care of perfectly. Now, it's late spring. It's time to put that plant out into your garden. All of a sudden, it's getting hit with much more direct sunlight. And here comes the spring winds. <laughs> beating the shit out of it, right? If you just take it and just throw it out there, a lot of times plants will do really bad. Sometimes they'll die. You need a hardening off period. So this is where we move it to a little less protected of a state for a couple of days, and then a little less protected of a state, and then we finally put it out. We give it time to adapt. We don't just throw it from nirvana to hellacious conditions, right? The ones grown in greenhouses, since they're closer to nature in the first place, seem to require less hardening off than the one grown in your upstairs bedroom under perfect plant lights. But it all works. You just need to figure out what works for you and what costs you the least amount of money. It makes no sense to say, well, I didn't buy plants this year, so I saved 50 bucks. But you invested $1,000 in infrastructure. It's going to take you 20 years to get your money back at that rate. So make good decisions on time and budget. Um, you need to develop a watering system and schedule. Your garden, once your plants are established... Is pretty resilient. If you miss a day of watering, things might look kind of sad, but in general they survive because your plants keep putting down roots deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper, assuming you have soil that can be deeper and deeper, not growing on a parking lot or a rock shelf like I do. Um, and the more resilient that plant becomes, the more it can tolerate you making a mistake. And you're 15-year-old. You know, if you come home from work at 5 o'clock every day and cook them dinner, He gets used to that. But if you're a 15-year-old kid, 5 o'clock you don't show up, 6 o'clock you don't show up, 7 o'clock you don't show up, 8 o'clock you finally show up. He might be upset and worried, maybe he couldn't get in touch with you, whatever, but he took care of himself. 
he probably ate mac and cheese or something, right? He, 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 you know, assuming you don't have a complete teacup kid, he, you know, a 15-year-old can take care of himself. You leave a five-year-old alone for four or five hours, you could have a real problem. Now think of a baby, right? The younger, the less resilient, the more they need your attention. Your seeds are not only young and less resilient, they're in a closed system. In nature, that little seedling that's only three inches tall, it may already have roots that go down nine inches. Plants do this. They send you know individual tap roots sometimes or hair roots way, way down. And even though it's not happy because the top surface is dry and it's not gotten everything it really wants, it can pull enough moisture out of that. If your plant in a six-pack, those little plastic six-packs, goes dry, there's nowhere it can go. So you need to think about ways to keep that soil moist, not wet at all times. Wet soil, you get mold, you get mildew, you get moss, you get dead, sick plants. So watering from the bottom is great, but if you put your plants in trays and fill the trays with water till they're like half full and everything is wringing wet and then they go completely dry, you're going to get mold and dry out at the same time. So you need to make sure you kind of figure out in your system, with your light, with your heat, how often watering needs to happen, how it needs to happen, and make sure that it happens, whether it's through automation or discipline. If you do good temperatures, good light, proper moisture, you can start just about any seeds you would ever want to grow, especially if you only start seeds that you should be starting. There's no, I, I, Again, I could go through a bunch of minutiae, and I have in the past. There's no more to it. That's what you have to determine. Where am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? What is my light source? What is my irrigation source? You don't need lots of fertilizer. Your seed has a lot of nutrients stored in it for your plant. And you're only going to grow that plant so large before you're going to transplant it. But babies need nutrient. So the, the concept to me where people say you, don't, you shouldn't fertilize your started plants at all. It's bad. Stupid. Okay? It's stupid. And most of the people that do it, that it works for, don't know they're fertilizing their plants. Since they're not an organic grower and they're not making their own potting soil, they go out and they buy miracle Grow potting soil. Or True Green or you know Green Stem or whatever. you know, And it's got six months worth of fertilizer in it. So the fertilizer is already there. Most of your organic potting soils will have plenty of fertility. Here's the issue with this, and this is why I'm okay with a little bit of fertilizer. I like to use all organic. I don't make my own potting soil. I don't grow enough to make it worth. I can go buy a bag of this stuff, and I'm good for two or three seasons. I end up not using it for two or three seasons. I end up dumping it into something else because um, I just don't like leaving it lay around and drying out. But you get what I mean. Like one bag of soil, you can start tons of plants. So the issue is most of your organic potting soils do not include amendments like blood meal, bone meal, and other things that are rapidly bioavailable to the plant. They get their fertility from compost. And if you go long-term in a large container, that works fine. But your baby plants might need some nutrient and some things like that. So I think a good, organic, balanced fertilizer like Dr. Earth 444, when you go to fill up your containers, just look at the, the directions, and calculate for the volume how much you should be doing if you were in a garden, and double it. 
So, you know, a little basin of soil, you might put two shot glasses, big shot glasses, like the ones you really shouldn't take shots out of, like two ounce, two and a half ounces, like five ounces of a, of a, of a organic uh, fertilizer. Mix it with your hands, then fill your containers. Plant in that, and your plants will take what they want, and it won't, it won't hurt them. And what people say is you'll get stronger roots if you don't give it fertility. Do you know how stupid that actually is? Do you think you're going to get stronger roots from a malnourished plant or a well-nourished plant? But the theory is, is the roots are going to go looking for fertilizer. Well, there's fertilizer throughout this little tiny cell you're planted. Now, I'm going to tell you my number one container now for starting plants in because they're stupid cheap and because it works so well and because they're big. I'd rather less plants in bigger containers than more plants in little containers because I can now have more benevolence, I guess, on how soon I have to plant them out before they stunt and they stay moist longer. Let me get rid of that. Okay. They stay moist longer, so I have more forgiveness if I forget to water. And the plant can get a bigger, healthier root system, and the plant can get bigger. And if I wanted to plant this week, and I'm not going to get to plant till next week, I'm not going to stunt my plants. So I want a bigger container. My number one starting container, red solo cups. The kind that you get when you have a keg party when you're in high school or college. Where everybody pays, you know, I don't know what people pay now. Back in the day in the 80s, it's two bucks. You got a cup, right? And then you go to the keg, right? That cup. You can stack ten of them in a stack, set them upside down, take a drill, put three holes in them, about a quarter inch each, right? Now you got ten. You go to Home Depot or Lowe's, and the, the holders, the black holders that the Bonnie's plants come in, The main size, the one they, they grow the most of, those holders, a red Solo cup fits in there like it was made to go in there. It's free. They'll give them to you. They usually have stacks of them. Take whatever you want. I don't care. Get it. Take it. You can have it. So that's what I use. And that way, if I want to transplant that plant when it's really little, I can just kind of go in there and pinch it out. But if I let it get really big, I can just pinch the cup and pop it out into the ground. And so you need a container, but that's what I use. And I use it because it's free, and it's big, and it's cheap. And when the cups crack or whatever, you just throw them away. You know, and you can buy a giant bag of those things at Costco for like seven bucks, more than you'll ever use. I use the same cups we put out for people to, um, to get drinks and stuff at our workshops. I use the same giant bag of cups. I just take out whatever I need whenever I need them. And easy. Also, they're red, black Sharpie, right right on them. You don't need plant labels. You're doing six-pack, you're making little plant labels and shit. Nope. Nope. Black Sharpie marker, mortgage, lifter, tomato. You know, if, if you're doing a whole 10-pack and they're all the same, X10. Everything in that tray is a mortgage, lifter, tomato. Done. Free. Damn near free. Close to free as you can get. So that's how I like to use them. And make sure you're not starting more than you can use. I see a lot of people like, I've... Uh, recommended like the little springhouse greenhouses and say, you know, you can heat this with a little portable Mr. Buddy heater on the nights that it needs to be heated, put a little shelf in it, start all your plants. And I, I can't start enough plants. Are, do you have a farm or a garden? You know, those little 10 packs that I talked about that you get from Home Depot and Lowe's, like a shelf that holds like three on each level and four shelves, right? That's 30, 60, 120 plants. You can plant a lot of garden with 120 plants. And re remember, we're not starting everything from seed in a container, only the stuff we need to. Peppers and tomatoes are your big ones. 
lettuces, cabbages, broccoli, cauliflower a lot of times makes sense. Even though they're cold weather plants, you know, they kind of don't do well when it's too cold out or when it's too hot out. So getting your timing right. But that's, that's it. Get your timing right. That's the big thing. And what I mean by that is if you want to put out tomatoes, then you need to figure out when do I want to put tomatoes out. What's my last frost date? Add two weeks to it. That's your, that's your prime time for putting tomatoes in the ground. So then you want to count back eight weeks from there, and then that's the day you put the seed in the container. And in eight weeks, that tomato plant should be big enough to be a nice start to put out. But you might find that with peppers, you need six weeks. So don't start your peppers and your tomatoes on the same day. Peppers are probably fine at eight weeks, though, especially with the big cups. But you see what I'm saying? Like, get your timing right. If you are a hard-headed person and you're like, I know Jack said not to do squash, but I want to get the earliest start on my squash as possible because I want to beat the squash vine borers and get some squash before they kill my plants. Okay, valid. You just gave me a valid reason for what you're doing. Well, have you seen how big a squash plant gets in three weeks? So then we don't want to start our squash plants eight weeks before we can plant them. We want to start them like two or three weeks before we can plant them. And we want to go maybe even a bigger container. The same Bonnies and all that, they have the ones that are a little bit bigger. Um, maybe it's that size then. So that we can let those roots get really, really big. And maybe our broccoli and cauliflower, we want to start those even a little bit earlier because when we get a nice size started plant, even when there's a little bit of chance of frost, we can go ahead and get those into the garden. So we just want to work that all out and start our seeds based on the timing that works for us and make sure we have a system in place. This is the number one thing. What is your system? Before you put that seed in that cup and put that cup under that grow light or in that greenhouse, what is your what is your watering schedule? And what is your watering method? Where's the light coming from? When does if it's if it's artificial light, when does it come on? When does it go off? How are you going to remind yourself to check on your plants? Are you going to put them somewhere where every time you walk in and out of the door of the house, there's a rack sitting right in front of you? Fine. Probably not need a lot of reminder then. Do you have an extra bedroom upstairs that you have to go up to? You better set reminder schedules on your iPhone or something like that. If they're out in a greenhouse in the back of the property, you better come up with a, a routine. And then you've got a sanity check the routine. I'm going to water three times a day. Oh, shit, they're drying out. I need to come up with another method. Do that and you'll be fine. But remember, there is no shame in buying plants or seeds. I grow like 10 different kinds of lettuce. I save no lettuce seed anymore. Occasionally, I'll let like a black-seeded Simpson or something go to seed. And then I'll just get an ass load of seed and I just throw it everywhere. And if it grows, it grows. But lettuce seed is cheap. I grow like nine, ten different kinds of lettuce. And I even buy the expensive pelleted seed because it just makes my life easier. Do you know how much? You buy ten packages of lettuce seed for, let's say, 25 bucks to 50 a piece. You can grow lettuce for years before you need more seed. So just understand you don't need to always do this. Understand that both of the things we talked about today are skill sets. Saving seed is a skill set. And saving tomato seed is a different skill set than saving bean seeds. Bean seeds are so easy. Tomatoes require a little specialization. Don't try to do it all at once. But remember, planting a garden is a skill set. Maintaining a garden is a skill set. Harvesting from a garden is a skill set. Making compost for your garden is a skill set. Developing a fertility regime and spraying your plants a couple times a year and adding supplemental fertilizer is a skill set. How many skill sets do you need to take on at once? 
So if you say, I want to start saving seed, pick one or two, because you've got all these other skill sets to master. And once you get those two seeds that you're saving, like, hey, this is easy, it's almost mindless, like my grandfather with his garlic and his bean seeds, then add another one. And then add another one. Same with all skill sets. Add one at a time, master it, then add another one. And then all of a sudden you're doing way more than you ever thought you could, but it doesn't seem like work because you've built it into your life. Right? Um, next, cherry pick what you want to save or to start. Don't, this is back to not doing everything, but what do you get the most benefit from? What do you get the most benefit from? Like, if you can go down to your local, if you grow six tomato plants a year, And the type of tomato that you want to grow, there's a little nursery guy sells on the side of the road or something, those tomatoes, for a dollar a plant. So it's six bucks. You can't afford to do it. Unless you like some special kind or you just want to. But you can't make an ROI case for it. Because I know there's a guy, he every, every year, he sets up his little car, little tent, puts out his plants, Sells tomatoes, peppers, all the common shit for a dollar a plant. Sells like 20 different varieties of tomatoes. Uh, I can't be bothered. There are certain tomatoes I want to grow in this next year. Like Matt's Wild Cherry, Texas Wild Cherry. I, he doesn't do that. So I got to start a few. But if I, you know, why would I start a black cherry tomato when I can go buy two from him for $2 and support that guy? So I'm going to literally cherry pick the cherry tomato that I'm going to grow. The things that I get the most return out of. Instead of trying to do everything. And the last thing is seed exchange groups. Make all this easier. Let's say that you want to grow two different types of peppers. You're worried about cross-pollination. You just get really good at isolating one. Maybe you want to grow ten peppers. You get really good at isolating one group of peppers. You focus on. The rest you just let, let them go. You just pick them. Find a friend in your area best, somewhere in the same region, that will do the same thing with a different pepper. And you'll just swap seed. And then buy your other plants for your variety. Or buy your other seeds for your variety. Now you've got double the work, double the result for half the work. Now if you can find four people, you can have four different really badass pepper varieties that you're swapping. And then everything else, you just let it grow. There's so much to that. My final thoughts on this is I want to go back to why we do this. When it comes to saving seed, we want local adaptation, specific traits. Maybe we save a little money, but mostly because we can and it's fun. And it's our, to, me, to me, it's our natural right. Human beings have a natural right to control their food supply. And rights that we do not exercise, we lose. And you can think that's pie in the sky or something. It's not. It's true. You look at every right that's been lost. It was generally lost not to seizure by tyrants, but to atrophy through apathy. I'm big on apathy. I love apathy, but I like proactive apathy. Proactive apathy is I focus on what I can do, and I have apathy towards the things I can't control. I'm not worried about Donald Trump. I have no influence on Donald Trump, and I am not dumb enough to convince myself that I do. Don't care. Not my problem. Right? Well, he has to be your problem. He's your president. Well, he is my president, and he creates problems, and some of those problems I have to deal with. But he's not my problem because I don't own him, and I don't control him, and no amount of get-out-the-vote bullshit stickers will convince me that I would have changed the election if I would have voted, and who would I have voted for anyway? Hillary Clinton? 
Like, I wouldn't have problems if there was a Hillary Clinton for president. Right? So that's not my problem. And I don't have any control. But when I look at my plants this year and go, man, that is really like the coolest Swiss chart I've ever grown. I think I'll let that one go even though it's a biannual. Wait for seed head to come up next year and harvest those seeds and plant those. That's in my, I can control that. I can, I can exercise my right over that. I can decide to buy those tomato plants from that local guy that's trying to make a buck. I can decide to grow some of my own. I do this because I can. And if we take that approach of, I'm going to do what I can because it pleases me in this, in this world, then it's never a job. It's never hard. I look at some of the stuff and I go, I could save seed from that. Eh. And I go look at my box and there's like, you have five, ten years worth of seed for that thing. There's nothing unique about it. There's nothing special about it. It's, screw it. you got enough to do. Or let it go to seed. Let it produce seed, and then just scatter it. See what happens. Feed it to the ducks. They'll move it. Just let it be simple. Since man has known what a seed is, man has looked at a plant, appreciated the plant, identified the means of reproduction, what type of seed it had or clone it had, taken it, and put it somewhere else. You don't need a laboratory coat. You don't need a Ph.D., You don't need a master gardener certification. You don't need to take a permaculture designer course. You don't need to become an expert at local permaculture. You don't need to do any of that to be able to plant seeds. I'll finish with a story that exemplifies how simple this is. When I was a little kid, my grandmother lived in a neighborhood that was a typical, you know, almost every house was a three or four bedroom, two bathroom house. And I learned really early about walking around the block. This is my grandmother in Florida when I was really a little kid. This is back when seven-year-old kids walked around the block by themselves and no one called CPS. And I ended up making friends, both child friends and even some adult friends, because people kind of in a neighborhood looked after a little kid walking around. He's got his mean green machine, remember that? Riding his mean green machine around the block. Yeah, go all the way around the block, can't cross the street, right? My mean green machine. So one of my friends that was actually childhood friends, named Jeff and his sister Jennifer, if I remember right, this is a long time ago, Their parents were also kind of those kind of parents that looked after other kids that were on the street and hanging out in the neighborhood. And so one day I was at their house and talking to them, and they had these beautiful bushes in the front of their house with all these different colored flowers on them. And it was late in the day, and they were all open. And I was like, those are really cool. And the lady, I couldn't remember her name. Her last name was Bush, by the way, though. I do remember Jeff Bush was the, the, the kid I was friends with. And uh, so, so she told me that they were called four o'clocks. And the reason they were all open is it was about four o'clock, and they opened at four o'clock. And I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. Now, again, I'm like six, seven years old. She says, well, if you want some, just take some seeds off the bushes and go plant them down at your grandmother's, and they'll grow. Well, what? I can just, What? So she shows me like the seeds, like the flowers form here, and then they make these individual seeds. You just they look like little back peppercorns. You just pull these off and plant them in the ground. So I go home, Grandma, I got seeds for four o'clock. And she's like, Oh, okay. My grandmother was a gardener. Flowers are a good thing. So she had this area kind of in the front of the house that she'd been gonna put something in there, you know, dahlias or zinnias or something. And her exuberant grandson wanted to plant seeds. So she did what grandparents do. I'll give up what I want so he can have what he wants. So I planted all the seeds and watered them and promptly forgot about it. 
my grandmother, being a good grandmother, and being the way I would be with one of my grandkids if they did this now, diligently watered the little area for me. And one day we were talking, it had been you know quite a while after that, and something came up about the four o'clocks. And I said, I wonder what happened to those four o'clocks. And she said, they're huge, go look. And I went out and looked, there was a big giant bush, just like the bushes had, and all these pretty flowers. They were all closed. I came and said, Grandma, they're closed. She said, well, they're four o'clocks, dummy. It's like one o'clock in the afternoon. They'll open later. And when I went out that afternoon, all the flowers were open. Bees were flying around. It was amazing. And I was like, wow, I made that. I was seven. If I can do that at seven, don't make this hard. Take the seeds, keep them dry, keep them dark, keep them cool, put them in a warm, moist environment when it's time for them to grow, take care of them, and they'll grow. Or get your grandma to do it for you if you're a little kid. Otherwise, do it yourself. Those are my final thoughts. With that, I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did, let's go ahead and remind you, you can help support this show by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. And uh, if you do your online shopping there, no matter what you buy, you'll help us out and the work that we do. Um, the item of the day I have for you today, I realize, like, winter's coming quick, man. Like, down here, it's beautiful and sunny out, and our winter doesn't really kick in until, like, January. We get some freezing here and there, but generally it's stuff that we can get through. It, it goes down below freezing a little bit uh, for a couple hours a night, and then by morning, if there is, like, ice on your stock tank for your birds, you just kick a hole in it for them, and you're good. January is when it gets really cold. For some of y'all, like really cold is like tomorrow. And making sure that your animals have access to water is not something to wait until you need to figure out what to do about it. K&H, ultimate all-in-one stock tank de-icer, is my solution. I use little 250-watt ones. They go all the way up to 1,500 watts, depending on what you need. This is why I like them. You know what I said? I say all-in-one. What does that mean? They have an internal thermostat. You put them in the water, and they float. They have a little ring that heats up. It uses whatever amount of wattage you buy, 250, 250, 500, 500, etc. And when the water temperature hits 35 degrees, they turn on. When the water temperature hits 45 degrees, they turn off. And that way you're not spending money on electricity when you don't need to. I use these in all my stock tanks, and I even in my garden ponds, I use them right where the intakes and the outlets are, running through my fountain systems, and they keep my they keep ice gets on there, but it keeps the water running through the whole year, so that it doesn't all freeze up, the pumps don't freeze up, etc. Again, I use mostly 250 watt versions of them because I'm trying to keep a 50 pounds a 50 gallon stock tank de-iced for some ducks to drink water out of. If you're using a bigger tank or you're in uh, colder climates, you might need to up your game, 750, 1,000, etc. But my suggestion, if you say, I need 500 watts, it'll cost you more money, but get two 250-watt ones. Why? They draw the same amount of power, put one on each side of the stock tank, and what happens if one of them conks out and dies on you? By the way, none of these have ever died on me, but if one does, the other one's still working. You still have an opening. You get time to, to come up with another solution. Two is one. One is none. The other thing is the 250-watt ones actually cost like the same or a dollar or two more, depending on what day you buy them because prices change on Amazon, than the 500-watt ones. So you might think, well, why don't I just buy the 500-watt one? It's the same price. Yeah? How much does it cost to run it? One month of running it during the cold weather, and the 250-watt one has saved you money. 
So make sure you size appropriate for your needs. But if you don't have these in your life, get them in your life. They are just a way to make things a lot easier. You guys do aquaponics, too. Um, they're not going to keep your tilapia alive, but they'll keep your aquaponics systems running through the winter. Um, they're just awesome. And they're not expensive, and they're, it is expensive to come out and not be able to provide your animals water because your stock tank is frozen solid. So get these things if you don't have them in your life already. And remember, no matter what you're looking for, you can always find it at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. That brings us to our song of the day as we go through Mythology Week. Today's song is by Deep Purple. I had never heard this song before. And this is kind of like a, a reboot for Deep Purple. Deep Purple's band's been around forever. Uh, this is a newer song for them anyway. I mean, these guys could have retired on the royalties long ago. But they like to make music and they keep doing it. And what I love about this song is being familiar with Deep Purple. It sounds like old school Deep Purple. They're not one of these bands that like tries to reinvent themselves. They just come out and keep doing the music that made them what they are. So the people that love them keep buying their music. Um, but what this song talks about is like it uses... Like Greek, Greek mythology, since we're in mythology, we're going back to like things like Achilles and things like that. And there's even a philosopher from like 450 B.C. or something like that mentioned in this song. And that's all good and well. What I take from this song, though, is even though he's using this false narrative here, basically, this mythology, this ethos of since the beginning of time, I've been trying to you know, catch up to you or whatever, we do have all the time in the world, all the time in our world. There was a saying we used to have in the Army, in Airborne, that when you exited an aircraft, if your main chute didn't deploy, don't worry, you have the rest of your, your life to deploy your reserve. That might only be a few seconds, but you have the rest of your life. That's kind of what I take from this song. We have all the time in the world, but our time in the world is finite. Make the most of your dash. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. And the nights are closing in. But if I traveled any faster, be Lord knows where I might have been. Right from those early days, I put my No